0: Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's An Original Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I am covering Dark, Season 2, Episode 3, and 4. And if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. I asked in my previous episode if Jonas was the one who needed this warning, and I'm very disappointed by the idea that he does. But we'll get there, much though I wish we wouldn't. Episode 3, titled Ghosts, opens with child Helga in the bunker in 1986, or perhaps 1987. It's unclear how long he's been trapped here, but it is clear that he's been here for at least long enough for Noah to build a whole new time travel prototype device. Gone is the visor that closes around the guinea pig's face, burns off their eyes, and destroys their ears. In its place is a body sized cylinder that closes to encircle the entire body, and Noah straps Helga in. Given that we eventually see him alive and well in 1954 and 1986 and 2019, we know that this device is much more successful at its task than the first. Upon my second viewing of this episode, given what we learn about Noah in Episodes 3 and 4, I think I'm starting to understand what Noah is actually doing here, but I'll try to puzzle through my theories on that for you guys in a bit. I expect my post-recap thoughts on this one are going to be long and convoluted in a way that I don't typically want them to be. I prefer to give you my thoughts mostly in accordance with my recaps, delivering my speculations alongside their supporting evidence. But so much was revealed in these two episodes that I feel I'm going to be grappling with a lot. In any case, we open for the second time this season on a sex scene. Doris, which I think is Egon's wife's name, is fully clothed, but clearly orgasmic. Agnes is going down on her, which is probably the first time that anyone's gone down on her, and possibly the first time she's ever come. It's the 50s, after all, and she's completely stopped having sex with her husband. Obviously, their sex life has not been satisfying for her, and while this could be because she's exclusively sapphic, it could also easily be that while Egon is only willing to have missionary PIV, Agnes actually bothers to make sex fun either way, though, Doris is clearly giddy over her affair, and we know she's going to be leaving Egon sometime soon. Four days after the apocalypse, 1950s time, Helga comes home. His mother is shocked to see him, but not especially pleased. It's made worse by the fact that Helga's trauma has rendered him mute, and she ends up suspecting that he could be possessed or something. Poor little bastard. It's easy to see why Noah found him so easy to manipulate. He's likely never known any warmth at home. At the police station, Egon and a fellow officer speculate over Ulrich, who has been drugged and straightjacketed in a solitary cell for the criminally insane ever since last year. But we'll get to that later. Right now, Egon is trying to carefully ask his friends about the norms of married sex, and I was really worried in this scene about where his friend's advice was going. Until he made it clear that he was suggesting Egon seek sex outside his marriage, in a very gross and misogynistic way, mind you, I was truly starting to think that he was going to tell Egon to outright rape his wife if he wanted to have sex with her. After all, it was not a crime for a man to rape his wife in America until the 70s, and it wasn't a crime in all 50 states of America until 1993, the year I was born. Now, I have no idea if Germany is quite as misogynistic and hateful as America, but I wouldn't be terribly surprised to find out if it was. Anyway, this nasty-ass conversation is broken up by the news that Helga was found alive in the most bizarre way. He just wandered back in the front door of his home, covered in scars and entirely mute. Speaking of things that are bizarre, we then cut to a scene of young Claudia and Tronti They're both on the cusp of puberty, and they're about to be involved in one of the most inexplicable and uncomfortable scenes I have ever witnessed. Claudia asks Tronti to show her his genitals, which he does with the most reluctant look on his face. And it's this bizarre moment of childhood sexual discovery that I would have loved to not have seen. I suppose I can tie it into the themes of the show, especially given the men versus women gender wars kind of thing that seems to be subtly developing here, but it doesn't really immediately tie into anything other than a compare contrast to Claudia staring at the time machine. I guess in a way, Tronti's penis is as to Claudia's time travel machine itself. Both are something that Claudia isn't particularly impressed with at first, but both are something that she's going to get a lot of use out of. And if I'm making you uncomfortable putting it that way, good, now you know how I feel. At adult Claudia's house, she tries to reach out to Regina, knowing that their time together is drawing to a close. But it's far too little, far too late. Claudia has been a horribly neglectful and emotionally abusive mother. Trying to bond with her daughter probably feels like a trap to Regina, and she's right to feel that way. God knows that under real-world circumstances, that's almost always what this type of scene turns out to be. It's often a passing moment of humanity and guilt on the part of the abuser, but they don't actually want to make amends. They want to bond in a way that soothes their ego and reassures them that they are actually a good parent. all, so that they can go right back to treating you like shit without having to feel bad about it for a while. At Egon's house, he's listening to very familiar metal music and putting one more piece of the puzzle into place. At Helga's house in 1954, young Egon is talking to Helga's mother. Egon tries to talk to Helgi, who of course doesn't answer him, and his mother shouting at him certainly doesn't do anything to help him overcome his trauma response. I've talked a lot about how much I hate Hannah, but let me take a moment to clarify that this bitch can get fucked too. She and Hannah are different kinds of awful, but they're both unambiguously trash. So back in the 80s, Claudia visits Helga in the hospital and asks about the book he gave her. Given what we know about Helga and Noah's relationship and their opposition to Claudia, one presumes that there is quite a bit more meaning to this gift than I originally assumed. It's possible that Helga was instructed by Noah, or by Adam, to give her this book. By the way, Helga rather violently warns Claudia to never trust Noah, and she of course has no idea yet who the hell Noah even is. And here I have to wonder why Helga appears to have turned on Noah in the first place. Helga says that Noah told him that they were trying to change things, not for them. Given Helga's vehement warning, one assumes that he found out this was not the case. But I remain a bit unclear on all of the motives of our three major players here, Adam, Claudia, and Noah. I think it's that Adam genuinely wants to keep the stable time loop, Claudia wants to change it, and Noah's motives shift over time. But that might not be entirely accurate. Any of them could be lying, or I could be misunderstanding one or more of them. Back in the 50s, Agnes, wearing a chic yellow outfit that might be symbolically important, goes into the bunker to meet up with Claudia. They're working together, apparently, which definitely moves us into men versus women territory. We have Noah and Adam on one side and Agnes and Claudia on the other, with Noah and Agnes being brother and sister. Interestingly, Agnes and Claudia have an exchange here about renouncing their blood, which has interesting implications. The only blood connection we know of for Agnes is Noah and probably Tronty, though Tronty does mention having been in an orphanage at one point. So it's possible that he isn't biologically related to Agnes. For Claudia, she has a whole host of blood relationships, her parents, Egon and Doris, her daughter, Regina, and Regina's son, Bartaz. So why is she renouncing her connection to them? And what exactly does that mean anyway? Does it mean abandoning them, sacrificing them, something else entirely? I look forward to finding out. Anyway, Claudia reveals to Agnes that she's going to die today, and what I think happens here is that the two of them arrange a scheme off-screen. Agnes is going to go back to Noah to make a deal. If he gets her back into Adam's good graces, then she'll give him Claudia, who has the missing pages. Noah takes the deal and believes that Agnes's treachery is real. I, however, think she's pulling a fast one on him. Back at the police station, Egon speculates on what happened to Helgi. Does Helgi showing up alive mean that their mystery man, Ulrich, didn't do anything to him, or does it merely mean that Ulrich had an accomplice? The possibility that he's innocent of killing the boys never seems to occur to them. Speaking of Ulrich, though, a 80s Egon is visiting him again in the psychiatric ward. He tells him that he found the lyrics that Ulrich recited for him way back in the 50s, which is impossible. The song wouldn't exist until decades after he quoted it. Egon tries again to ask why Ulrich murdered the two boys, and Ulrich again tries to deny it. So Egon tries instead to ask how Ulrich knew he was dying of cancer. And then he asks if Ulrich knows who the white devil is. Ulrich has no idea, and neither do I. My candidates at the moment are Claudia, Egon, and Ulrich himself. But then Egon asks the most important question, what is Ulrich's real name? And finally, Ulrich tells him that he is Ulrich Nielsen. We don't get to see the look on Egon's face, which I feel is a missed opportunity. In the 80s, businesswoman Claudia visits Tannhaus, who makes it clear that he's involved in the timey-wiminess of it all. He's trying to explain the bootstrap paradox to her, because the book she's brought him, the book he supposedly wrote, is not something he ever actually created. He was given that book, and presumably it was a manuscript copied from its contents that he eventually had published, possibly at a vanity press. There might not even be more than one copy of this book in existence. Perhaps everyone is just passing a single copy of the damn thing around. In the 50s, Helgi's mother is busy competing for Mother of the Year. She tells Noah all about how her dumbass son won't talk anymore, and he's just an empty husk and doesn't seem to have a brain at all, and is probably, you know, possessed by a demon, and... I just want someone to smack the entire fuck out of this awful woman. The closest thing she says to something reasonable is her admission that she just doesn't know how to handle this situation, which is all she should have said, period. Stop blaming the poor goddamn kid and start seeking proper resources. And by proper resources, I don't mean a shady fucking priest. If there's anyone I wouldn't let a Catholic priest hang around, it's a mute little boy. But what's interesting in this scene is that while Helgi knows and apparently loves Noah, I have no idea if this Noah actually knows him. It's entirely possible that Noah was simply sent by his little book to visit Helgi today, and that the Noah who sent Helgi through time is actually a future version of this Noah. Or maybe the show has just made me lose my mind, I can't be sure. Anyway, Helgi's mother has clearly got it banned for Noah, which worries me. Again, we don't know who the other candidate for Helgi's dad is, and I remain concerned that it could be Noah himself, or worse, Adam. Back in the 80s once again, Egon interviews Inez about Mikkel. Inez isn't being especially forthcoming with information, and there's even the awful implication that she drugged Mikkel with sleeping pills, so that Egon couldn't directly speak to him. Inez very reluctantly agrees to Egon's request for a photo of Mikkel, and then sends Egon on his way. At the church, Agnes meets up with her brother. Noah accuses her of being sent by Claudia and warns her that she's not welcome back on Adam's side. But like I said earlier, Agnes is there to make a deal. Adam is searching for pages ripped from the Trikecha journal, and Agnes says that Claudia has them. She'll arrange for Noah to meet up with Claudia to kill her and to steal the pages, but Agnes has to be led back into the Sigmundus group. There's an uncomfortable moment here of Agnes caressing her brother's face rather intimately, and she looks at his lips while she does it, so... I guess she really is his sister, but there's still that thing she told Doris about her husband, and this scene just makes me wonder. Also, I think it's important to note that the church in which they meet exists in 1921. We haven't seen it, as far as I know, in any other time, so I'm thinking that the unspoken implication here is that Agnes traveled through time in order to get here. How, though? Businesswoman Claudia has Crone Claudia's time machine. Does everyone in Sigmundus have their own? It's something to ponder. At Egon's office, Crone Claudia comes in to visit her father. Given that it's her last day to live, she takes a few minutes to apologize to Egon for everything that's going to happen in his future. His wife leaving him for another woman, the strained relationship between his older self and her younger self, and the cancer that eventually kills him. Speaking of Claudia and Egon's 1980s relationship, he's waiting for her in her office when she finally gets back to the power plant. She is incredibly unwelcoming and rather unkind, trying to get rid of him up until the exact moment she discovers that he's dying of cancer. I've got to admit that I'm liking Egon a lot more this season than last. It helps that he's just an old man now and not a fucking cop. But back in the 50s, when he is still a cop, he has his third conversation with Claudia in rapid succession. He tells his daughter that he just saw a witch, and the irony is palpable. But then Egon gets a glimpse of it. Baby Claudia's musings here about her father being a good person are word for word what Crone Claudia just told him a few moments ago, and the shock and horror on his face is palpable. And then in the 80s we're with Egon for the fourth scene in a row. This time he's visiting Ulrich in the mental hospital again, and we've come to the big reveal. Egon is not suspecting the consequences of what he's about to say, so he says it without any caution. He tells Egon that Mikkel is here in 1987, and of course, Ulrich loses his entire mind. All the rage and violence he had when they imprisoned him and drugged his emotions away comes rushing back, and he strangles Egon while the rest of the patients look on in various degrees of amusement and terror. I feel bad for Egon here, honestly, but this was a pretty moronic move. The guy has been in a mental ward for over 30 years. At best, he's going to be unstable. Imprisonment isn't a fun way to live, whether it's at a prison proper or a mental institution. And at worst, Egon is essentially taunting a man who's lost 30 years of his life looking for his son with a photo of said missing son. Like, this is why Egon is a bad officer. He just doesn't think things through. As the next stop on her farewell tour, Crone Claudia delivers Tannhaus's book to him and just generally leads him into terrible confusion with all of her explanations of the future, which are of course contradictory and incomprehensible from his view. But according to Claudia, all this will come to an end soon, but until then, everything must remain as it always has been. And that's contradictory and incomprehensible from my point of view. Claudia truly seems to believe that it's possible to change things, and I don't know if I believe her. I feel like there's a big piece of the puzzle missing, something that I need to know before I can truly grasp what's happening here, in regards to everyone's goals and motivations, and perhaps it's tied in with that notion of the so-called white devil. We'll hear a reference to the devil later, after all, in regards to the unstable wormhole at the ruined power plant. Elizabeth calls that thing, quote, a piece of the devil. And you know what? Speaking of religious themes here, should I be making something of the detail that the song Ulrich quoted was Pleasure to Kill by a band called Creator? Because that can really easily be interpreted as being related to the whole angry God thing surrounding the Abrahamic flood myth and similar Bible stories. But down in the caves, alongside the nuclear contamination barrels, businesswoman Claudia powers up the time machine for the first time, and in the woods, Noah points a gun at Crone Claudia, taunting her over Agnes's apparent betrayal. But Claudia either seriously believes, or else wants Noah to seriously consider that she arranged this, and I definitely believe her. He says he's no longer one of her pawns, to which I say, when was he? But Claudia counters with an accusation against Adam. Adam, according to her, is, quote, selling Noah the illusion of freedom. If he were really free, after all, he'd be able to choose not to kill Claudia here, or to choose not to steal the pages, or to choose to walk away from Sic entirely, or to do any number of other things. And Noah doesn't choose any of that. He kills Claudia, he takes the pages off her corpse, he reports back to Adam but he does make one choice. He doesn't give the pages to Adam. I don't know if anything in the stable time loop has changed because of this, but it appears that Noah's motivation has. And somehow, it has something to do with Charlotte. And to think that I was mostly joking when I said I hoped it didn't turn out that Charlotte was Noah's daughter. On to episode 4. We are, unexpectedly, in a field of what I think is wheat. Jonas has been dumped in 1921, and so he buries his yellow radiation suit, hopefully for safekeeping instead of full abandonment, because this prominent scene of Jonas burying his one garment in that trademark yellow happening in the same episode as the claim that Adam and Jonas are one and the same leaves me worried. The abyss also gazes into you, after all. There's a lot of Harvest imagery here, alongside a funeral procession and very ominous background music, so I have to wonder what that's trying to tell me. It's obviously nothing good. In any case, we get to see baby Agnes here, and that's a bad sign. Seeing baby Agnes while Jonas is being mistaken for a soldier means that we're about to reach the point of Noah's life, when Jonas takes the room next to Noah's. I think that story plus this scene means that the matronly woman we see working in this scene must be Noah and Agnes' mother, which is a small relief given that it means their mother's identity can't make this twisted family tree any more twisted than it already is. Probably. But their father is still a mystery, and I hope he turns out to be no one of importance. Anyway, anyway, once we're back in 2020, we get yet another sex scene. What's that, like one per episode now? This one is Marta and Jonas again, but instead of Jonas jolting awake, Marta gets to take her own turn at that. The girl is not doing well, and I feel really bad for her here, though she's a right bitch later in the episode. Speaking of bitches, Clausen is at the police station, being the biggest one in the show himself. Voller tells him that Charlotte called in sick, and clausen has got the nerve to demand to know what she's supposedly sick with, making it perfectly clear that he thinks she's lying and or thinks he's entitled to every detail of literally everyone's life. This guy is like the anti-secrets guy. And what was that thing Francisca said a few episodes ago? It's not the secrets that are the problem, it's what we project onto people to fill in the gaps? Yeah, this dude doesn't believe anyone is entitled to any privacy or any boundaries and I hope he gets what's coming to him. He is the fucking worst. Unfortunately for Voller, Charlotte's absence means that he's stuck playing and sidekick today and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But elsewhere in Vinden, Charlotte gets some unexpected news. Hannah calls her over, and while she's on her way, we get a long shirtless scene of adult Jonas that takes time to linger over the scars on Jonas's back. These scars, I think, are meant to corroborate what we hear at the end of the episode, that time travel somehow causes body degeneration, but I don't know if I buy that any more than I buy anything else that Adam claims is true. Claudia, after all, was time traveling all over the place, and we never saw any signs on her body that she was suffering. Did Claudia really do that much less time travel than Adam? I find that rather hard to believe. Anyway, Jonas finds Alexander's gun and the Boris Niewald passport, and he's rightly worried. But I really don't want him to press this issue. Hannah is nothing if not a threat, and I can easily see her turning on this version of Jonas at the slightest provocation. At Marta's house, Francisca and Magnus are going for round two of their drama. But though Francisca wants to make amends, Marta decides to take a leaf from her mother's mean girl playbook. She's ridiculously rude to Elizabeth for absolutely no reason. And what the fuck is it with people treating this little girl like she's not even a goddamn person? Marta refused to even return her wave. No wonder Elizabeth grows up to be so hardened. The people around her suck. But Magnus, Marta, Francisca, and Elizabeth are getting ready for an inexplicable team-up. They're going into the caves to try to figure this whole thing out for themselves, and might I remind everyone what happened last time they let a younger sibling tag along for a trip to the caves? That's how Miko got lost in 1986, in case you've forgotten, and so I cannot tell you how worried I was for Elizabeth for most of this episode. And though she comes through it unscathed, I'm still really worried about her, honestly. If that skin damage she's got in the future isn't a result of the apocalypse, Could it be a result of time travel? Back in 1921, Jonas wakes up, bandaged and bloody, to find early 20s Noah in his bedroom. I will note that Noah refers to the woman Jonas talked to as Erna, not Mom, so perhaps she's a stepmother or just someone who took him in. If that's the case, that means Noah's biological mother is still in play. But anyway, this confirms for me that this Noah really is the Noah we know, and I don't like the vibes he gives off in any of his scenes with Jonas. Back in 2020, Claudia is trying to figure out how to contact her future self. Except there's no Claudia Tiedemann at the power plant. The only Tiedemann there is Alexander, who is currently being interrogated by Clausen and Voller. And Clausen is the worst fucking cop in the world. While he chats with Alexander, making all kinds of subtle accusations and vaguely shitty remarks about the town, he starts going through Alexander's things, including opening up his laptop to look at what's on it. And no one says anything in protest. If that would have been me, I'd have been yelling. Personally, I'd recommend slamming the lid shut on his hand. But in America, that would net you a day or two in jail, at least, for assaulting an officer. Never mind the fact that the officer in question was actively breaking the law at the time. Because why on earth would a cop have to obey the law. They're the good guys. Gag me. At Hannah's house, she's trying to convince Jonas that the gun and the passport are insurance, and he realizes that she means they're blackmail material. It's his first inkling that Hannah is not a good person, and before he can press it, in comes Charlotte. She immediately recognizes him as the man Regina was talking about, and she asks if he recognizes the photo of the Sic Mundus members. He recognizes Noah and calls the group the Travelers, which implies to me that everyone in the photo might be a time traveler. If so, that introduces a ton of extra variables into the plot. At the caves, the remaining teens and Elizabeth head in to look around, and at the library, businesswoman Claudia is struggling to navigate modern technology. To be honest, I'm a bit surprised at the state of this library myself. I've never seen a library that offers touchscreen computers before, nor this much personal space. My own library, far and away the best one in my county, if not my entire region of my entire state, has a ton of computers that you can use, but they're all pretty out-of-date, and you will definitely be setting up everyone else's ass. Also, you have to register before you can use them, sign into your library account, and hope that whatever you're planning to do is quicker than the time limit that's going to kick you out in like an hour, maybe two. This shit at this library looks like sci-fi to me too, Claudia. After leaving the power plant, Voller and Clausen have a chat. Voller talks about Hannah. Apparently, she was so pretty that she could have had any man, which is a toxic trope if ever there was one. And he asks about how Clausen got assigned to this case. Clausen claims he volunteered, and I could not be more suspicious of this man. He is up to something nefarious, and I will not be convinced otherwise. At the cabin, Charlotte shows Hannah and Ulrich their document collection down in the bunker. Most importantly, and I don't remember this happening, which sucks because I think it is a major piece of the puzzle, Peter has the Triketra book that we keep seeing with Noah. Apparently it was given to them by Claudia, which I don't remember happening, though I do remember seeing Peter and Tronti looking at a list of dates when Jonas travels through the tunnels for the first time. So I suppose that was this little book. It's new information to me, but perhaps I'm slow and I miss something. Hannah inexplicably insists that they have to tell Katarina about all of this, and it's not the best of ideas, as far as I'm concerned. Having Hannah involved in this worries me terribly, and having Katarina involved, too, just makes things even worse. In any case we're back to the library where claudia is going through the digital records of her family history she stumbles across an article reporting her father's death apparently egon is found dead in his apartment a day before the apocalypse 1987 time and my personal pet theory is that he's killed for looking into this white devil person or thing because he's really not being subtle about looking into it he's asking anyone and everyone if they've heard of it and i expect that to bite him in the ass sometime in the next three to four episodes if the white devil turns out to be a person it might even be that this person kills him themselves In 1921, Jonas has decided to break my heart once again. He's determined to leave, and he tries to get back through the tunnels in the caves again. But it's 1921, and the tunnels haven't even been fully dug yet, and the wormhole won't exist until the 50s anyway. I want so badly to give this boy a hug. He's really got no one right now, and he's way too young to be dealing with all of this on his own. At least Mikkel has a Nez. In 2020, Charlotte drives Katarina to the bunker. She's not telling Katarina where they're going or why, which leaves Katarina quite reasonably convinced that either her son's or her husband's body has finally been found. Charlotte tells her to just wait for the answer, but she ends up giving in. She tells Katarina that Ulrich and Mikkel were found and that they're alive, but she can't really explain. Katarina will just have to see the evidence in order to understand. But for Katarina seeing is not believing. It doesn't help that Hannah's there, of course. But what they're asking her to believe is ridiculous, and Katerina's not the gullible sort; She immediately assumes that they're pulling some kind of a weird con on her. And Jonas's assertion that he's not just Hannah's son, but also Katarina's grandson, is rightly met with laughter, not belief. Granted, I'd feel worse for Katarina here if Katarina wasn't such a bitch about it. The way she gets up in Jonas's face is entirely unwarranted, and it's a great representation of how her mean girl tendencies still exist in her identity as a middle-aged mom. Which means I find it a bit disturbing that she's a principal of a high school. Anyway, back to the caves. The remaining teens plus Elizabeth are wandering around speculating about what happened to Jonas and searching for clues. Elizabeth feels the ground start to shake, and then the others do too. They run for cover while Bartas reappears in 2020 with his own time machine. I presume this means that he's a part of Sikmundus now, and that I'm right about everyone in Sycamundus getting their own little time travel machine? Otherwise, they share the devices, and whoever was supposed to get a turn after Bartaz is going to be pretty pissed, because the kids tie him up and steal his machine. Marta in particular looks like she's about ready to beat the absolute shit out of him, and you can really see her mom in her here. Her mom, meanwhile, abandons the gang in the bunker after mocking them and calling them crazy, and, again, though she is incredibly shitty about it, she's not unreasonable for thinking that they've all lost it. And in the car with Voller, Clausen announces that the town has, quote, a man-eating cave, which I've gotta admit is fucking funny. What's less funny is Clausen's continued streak of invasive questioning, though. He asks quite indelicately what happened to Voller's eye, and though I'd love to have the answer, I don't appreciate someone just demanding it like that. Have some tact. But before the story can come out, Voller has to slam on the brakes because businesswoman Claudia has decided to wander through the road as if traveling 33 years into the future has made her forget how to look both ways. Truly, I do not get the point of this scene other than to have a cutesy little fake out regarding Voller's eye, and that's a pretty weird decision as far as I'm concerned. At the school, Katarina storms through a yellow door to check the school's records. It's actually pretty good thinking on her part, and I didn't expect it from her. It turns out she at least believed the gang enough to double-check their claims, and she's horrified by what she finds. Michael Conwald is her mickle, as evidenced by his class photo from the 1986-1987 school year. It's a really sad moment. Outside the caves, back in the 20s, Jonas and Noah have another antagonistic chat, and if Jonas and Noah isn't this show's most popular mail-slash-ship, I will eat my fucking hat. The tension between these two is very much going to catch a shipper's eye. The antagonism they have here is just ridiculously shippy, and I'd say that I hope that means they're not related, but Jonas's actual love interest in this show is his aunt, so maybe that doesn't matter anyway. But back to our 2020 cast of adults, Jonas offers a tiny hint of his motivation here. This exchange is only so significant in retrospect, but Jonas says that Adam claimed there was a loophole to the stable time loop, and I would love more information on that. But the characters want more information on who Adam is, and while I initially thought that he answered pretty honestly, the end of the episode casts doubt on this. Jonas merely says that Adam is the leader of Sigmundus, which could be him neglecting to mention that Adam once tried to trick him into believing that Adam was Jonas's future self, or it could be him neglecting to mention that Adam really is his future self. But Jonas does say here that his goal is to stop Adam, and is that really possible? This version of Jonas made sure that his teen self stays on the path to becoming him. Why would he think that Adam would operate any differently? And if he didn't think that his own teen self had any real choice in whether or not to do things differently, why does he think he does? Blind, desperate hope? I can't help thinking back to the graveyard in the opening episode. We saw Alexander's grave, as well as Waller's and Marta's, and someone named Justina's, so if the time loop stays stable, then those are the only characters that were guaranteed to lose on the 27th. It's possible that next season we will see our 2020 cast in the first months or years of the apocalypse. Back in 1987, Claudia has made it back to her own time. I was honestly surprised, especially given that article she saw about her own mysterious disappearance. I fully expected her to never return to her real life. But back to Jonas. He's following Noah to where answers can supposedly be found, but perhaps those answers are only more manipulation. As Jonas and younger Noah wait in the church, older Noah shows up, and again, this scene is like slash shipper catnip. Two Noahs, both of whom are perfectly willing to get uncomfortably close to pretty, pitiful, still mostly innocent, very vulnerable Jonas. Yeah, this is the fandom slash ship. I would bet a considerable amount of cash. Anyway, these two Noahs lead Jonas deep into the earth to meet with Adam, and in the future, we finally get to follow up on what happened to Scargirl after Jonas left her. She's ambushed by Elizabeth, and the two women confront one another, confirming for me that Scargirl was being honest when she freed Jonas from his cage. Evidently, I was overly suspicious. But Scargirl wants to know what the portal is, and Elizabeth explains that while the others think it's a quote, of God, she thinks it's a piece of the devil, whatever that means. Given the recurring hints of a white devil, I do wonder what is happening here is there a connection? But back to 1921. Younger Noah is talking about the prophecy while looking at that picture that we saw earlier in one of young Elizabeth's books, and it makes me wonder if this picture might be a depiction of the prophecy. I don't recognize it as anything extant and famous, though that doesn't mean it isn't, nor would its IRL existence mean that the in-universe characters couldn't be interpreting it as something prophetic in their world. Just a thought, though. Older Noah, meanwhile, is contemplating the torn pages from the journal, the pages that appear to have turned up against Adam. He claims not to know who wrote the journal, but that this person, whoever they are, knew the past and the present. That means it could really be anyone who isn't already dead before ever time-traveling, honestly. It could be Claudia or Jonas or Adam if he isn't Jonas, or Barthas or even Noah himself. But speaking of Jonas and Adam, they're finally meeting. He explains that the damage to his body is the result of time traveling too much, which I don't know for sure that I buy, and he makes vague proclamations about the end. "'Who are you?' asks Jonas, and the answer is not one that I like. "'Don't you know?' asks Adam, and I don't know, just compare that to the way adult Jonas confirmed his identity to teen Jonas. It feels very different. It feels like this guy could be lying." But Adam pulls down his collar and shows Jonas the hanging scar on his neck, the same scar that older Jonas has, and that's still a fresh wound, on teen Jonas's neck. Again, I don't know for sure that I buy this. It's not like it's impossible to fake a scar. Metatextually, all of these scars are faked. But Jonas does seem to believe him if the tears streaming down his face are any indication, and I guess let's talk about this, shall we? If Adam is like Jonas's final form, then that means both teen Jonas and adult Jonas are working against him and yet still grow up to be him. It's not impossible, but it's going to take something huge to get me to buy that jump in characterization. He's already partially there in adult form, I guess, given the way that he talked teen Jonas out of changing things in order to preserve his own existence. This is just one step further than that, perhaps. But I suppose some of my opinion here is really dependent upon what Adam's motivation actually is. The closest I am to being clear on his motivations is his line about having to burn down old trees to facilitate new growth. Beyond that, we've other characters telling us that Adam and Noah have talked about loopholes and the possibility of changing things, and I don't know whether we can believe secondhand information about Noah any more than I think we can trust what comes out of his mouth. I I truly don't know what to think about this. I I don't know if I even believe it, first of all, and I don't know whether I trust Adam's motivations are what they seem to be, and I don't really understand what it is that he hopes to accomplish, and I have no idea what any of this means for the story overall. Where do we go from here? Is this just one big shaggy dog story about an apocalypse that cannot be averted? If so, I can understand why people wouldn't enjoy the ending as much as they enjoyed the rest of the show. But if not, then really, where do we go from here? How do our characters break free from this loop? I honestly don't believe at this point that it's genuinely possible, which leaves me fully in the dark on the future of Dark. So let's look at Noah. I think at this point in the story, the future-most Noah that we've seen has broken from alignment with Adam. My theory at the moment is that he's working on different goals from either Adam or Claudia, and I think there's a chance that it's more mind screwy than we realize. The Sigmundus group is a group of time travelers. They are using machines based upon the specifications that Claudia delivered to Tenhouse, and we don't know where those specifications came from. Perhaps they are Sigmundus' own creation. But throughout the seasons, Noah has been attempting to create a time travel device very different from the machine that we see being used by an ever-increasing list of characters. His device is a chair with something that encloses the time traveler, and I think we're meant to believe that this prototype eventually turns into the portable device that we've seen. But what if it doesn't? What if Noah is trying to build a fundamentally different device? What if this isn't an early version of the portable machine, but something entirely separate? What if, when he breaks ideologically from Adam, he starts trying to create his own version of the time travel device? What if the abduction of the boys isn't actually the work of Sigmundus? What if Noah's working against Sigmundus by the time he's working with Helga? Is that possible? Does that fit with the timeline? I feel like I'm losing my mind here, and maybe I'm fully wasting my time speculating at all. Maybe the real answers aren't something I can predict. Maybe I'm looking in entirely the wrong direction, and picking up on entirely the wrong clues. Or maybe it really is just a shaggy-dog story, and I'm wasting my time with theories altogether. Maybe things are going to end exactly the way it seems they're going to. Clausen did have that line about the virtues of low expectations and pessimism, after all." Either way, I suppose I'd better just shut up and watch the next two episodes. They cannot possibly confuse me any more than my own wild speculation is managing to. So, I'm really enjoying this show so far. I am tentatively expecting to continue enjoying it well into the future. This is the halfway point of this season, so that makes this the halfway point of this show, pretty much. And I'm very interested to see what is all involved in the back half, like... What are, what, where do we go from here? Like, I understand all of the individual goals of the characters as much as I'm able to at this point, at least, but what is, what is our ultimate goal here? Are we really going to destabilize this loop? Are we going to learn that it can't be destabilized? Are we just going to, you know, learn to live with the life we've got? What, what do we do here? I don't even know which one of those options I prefer. But in any case, if you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in leaving a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice, or talking about the show on social media, or recommending the show to a friend. Anything is appreciated. If you are interested in my reaction videos, including reactions to shows like Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, Squid Game, and of course Dark... That is available to $5 patrons, and if you're interested in what I'm going to be watching next, you want to head over to my Patreon, where for $1 per month, you get access to up to four polls determining what it is that I watch from week to week. This week, I am watching the entirety of Dark Season 2, writing all of my podcast scripts, and recording all of my podcast episodes. Next week, I would very much like to go directly into Dark Season 3, but in order for that to be possible, I need you guys to vote for it on the poll. So if you're interested in any of that, go check it out. Otherwise, All I have to say from here is thank you so much for listening. At best, he is going to be unstable. Unstable? That's not a word.